Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Hall of Fame writer Peter Gammons. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we welcome a legendary baseball writer, broadcaster, and music aficionado. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the great Peter Gammons. Peter, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thank you, Brett. It's great to be on. It's, uh, I mean, I, it, it seems like I've, I've gone through a lot of years with your family, and I'm proud of it. So it's uh, um, very proud of it. So it's, uh, it's great to be on with you. A lot of boons, a lot of boons. Uh, I want to start with this. I've, I'm going to give you one night. You can do anything you want. Uh, you can't do anything you want. I'm going to give you three choices. A, you're going to go to a ball game at Fenway to watch Teddy ball game. Second choice is you're going to go over to Chapel Hill and you're going to get, get to watch Jordan play. The third one is we're going to go to Carnegie Hall you're going to sit for a performance by Eddie Vedder. What are you choosing? I probably would go back. For what I know now, I would probably go back to watch Teddy Morgan. Um, and just because um, I saw him play, but I was so young, I really didn't know what I was watching. And then after all the years that I spent talking to him about hitting, and talk, I mean, just listening to him talk about about all the things that he did and, and how, what playing pepper every day for 20 to 30 minutes meant to a swing path and everything. I, I think I would love to go back and just watch it in person rather than on tape and go back and see it. What would be strange about it, of course, is the other events would be completely packed, um, but it would not be packed because the Red Sox probably were drawing like ten or eleven thousand in those days, but that's okay. I could have actually, I could have probably gone right down the front row, right in back of a uh, of Ted, and watched him hit. It's so interesting. You mentioned the pepper, the pepper thing. I was just we were, I was having a conversation with my dad recently, and we talked about that. And you know, when I was growing up in the in the the seventies and the eighties, and and the teammates that that dad had and when he when he let me tag along and go to the ballpark it was so big in my childhood all the all the big leaguers that's what they did before the game it's they played pepper pete rose was a huge advocate for pepper you mentioned ted williams I think it's such a lost art and kind of poo-pooed these days. You know, Peter, I, I don't remember the actual time when those no pepper signs came into play at the ballpark. I remember them vividly. They're there now. But it's such a little nuance in the game that can be so beneficial to, to all generations of baseball players. And it's so simple. It's, it's like, you know, I, I kind of compare it to when I was a kid in the minor leagues and a guy named Marty Martinez came to me and he said, Brett, the best defensive drill you can do. And he brought me over to this brick wall. And he said, and, and he gave me a, a, a five-minute drill, what I do. I'd throw the ball against the wall. It would ricochet off at different, uh, different angles, but it got my feet moving. It taught me how to have great feet. And, and it's, 
you know, it's not it's not uh, cool or sexy to throw a, a ball against a brick wall. But man, it, it, it helped me so much. I think the same thing with Pepper. I mean, Pepper is such a bat control thing. It's such a, a skill that that I don't think we really take advantage of these days. And, and for you to bring that up with, with the Ted Williams, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just the conversations I've had recently. I I would love to see it come back. I think young kids learning to play pepper and control the bat angle and, and learn that two strikes. Yeah. We do choke up a a little bit. We do something different. I don't know. That just brought me back there. I wasn't expecting that, but but very cool. One of the things I was really fortunate because when I started covering um, the major leagues in the, in the early seventies, I mean, there were no restrictions on where we go in clubhouses. On the road, almost every day, I would go to the ballpark and go work out for BP, to do things like that. Steve Usinich in Oakland always had my, had a locker with my name over it. It was, uh, I, I was like one of my great honors. But the thing that, you know, the, the, the pepper, Johnny Pesky was coaching, and of course he was a fat, you know, control guy and, it was tremendous. So we would go out and he would, we would play pepper with him. But one of the things that they did a lot was with the pitchers. Red Sox had some great fielding pitchers in the late seventies, Tom Bergmeier, Bill Campbell, Dick Drago, and they would play this power pepper um, to help their fielding. And I used to play with them. Uh, their game was how many times can we hit? How many times can we hit Peter in the shins? But, but you know, I had fun doing that because it, it, it was learning the game just as actually being out there, as you can imagine, on the field, shagging, throwing some – understanding how players think was very important to what I did in work. Um, but at the same time, the pepper I, – I, of course, we would hit and so forth, but the fielding with those guys – and Bergmeier and Campbell were unbelievable fielders. And, I mean, the, the way they would play that game of pepper – it was amazing, and it's probably before your time. The Brewers, with the Robin Yount Brewers, used to play, go out there. They had a flip game and they had pepper games, and they were out there every day until uh, clubs. Well, we're going to have corporate sponsors on the field at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, and it all gets cut out. And it's, I always thought it was really a shame. I used to love to watch, you know, Yount and Molitor and Gantner and B.J. Surhoff and those guys play these wild games of, of, uh, of flip and pepper. And they always included some of the pitchers, the Bob McClure's and guys like that in it. So that it helped them, um, you know, just in terms of their fielding. And I also always thought that it was a really, it was a really good bonding experience. Just watching how guys, the games they would play, not only with the pepper to warm up, but just to get a little heated. The games of flip would be a lot of fun. And uh, those Brewer teams were so close. Um, And it just, I mean, you know, Robin was obvious. Robin and Ted Simmons were the leaders of them. But it was was different. And I I think it's come up. Don Manigley's talked to me a lot about, you know, wanting guys to be able to play pepper and then, you know, it's, well, geez, we're more interested right now in exit velo. And, um, of course, Donnie always says, ah, Peter, we really need to get Gwyn and Boggs out of the Hall of Fame. Their exit velos were really bad. Uh, but it's, there's so much to it. I remember 
Yeah, the guys you know, always fascinates me. Jim Cott was talking about one day, we were at Fenway a couple, about three years ago, and he was talking about walking down through the back entrance and walking down the left field line at like 9 o'clock in the morning to make his fourth start in the big leagues. Day game, of course. And um, they're out there at 8.39 in the morning as Ted Williams playing Pepper with the clubhouse guys and with Tom Yawkey, the owner of the team. And those are things you're, I'm sure your father remembers. And just about how much, cause, you know, those guys took care of Ted with everything. And it was... It, Ted always used to tell me, okay, I've got, you know, I've got, I've got, the, I generate, I, I start to generate from, from, from my legs. And of course he always, he understood core, I think before any trainer did. Uh, and then, you know, he talked about how it goes from his left foot, left foot to his, to his right fingers. But in it all was the control of the bat that he had by playing pepper. And, um, you know, just knowing what I know now about Ted, I, I would find it absolutely fascinating to watch him live rather than on video and, and just watch how he used that, whether he's facing Herb Score or whether he's facing somebody who wasn't, you know, in that class. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and Grandpa, before he passed away, he, he'd tell me, Ted Williams, I mean, he told me, the same Ted Williams story 52 times. And then, you know, fast <laughs> forward uh, nowadays, what I'd give to hear, hear that story from grandpa one more time. It's really cool. And and with the, you know, <laughs> we've spent a lot of time on pepper now, but isn't it amazing? Everything going on in life right now. And uh, the game, it, it's too dangerous to play pepper. We've got too many other things going on. We got to put these signs up all over the place. It's, it's funny to me, but uh it, it is what it is. It's 2021. All right. Yeah. Peter Gammons, born in Boston, raised in Groton, Massachusetts. I want to hear about you as a kid. Were you a uh, Stratomatic baseball guy, Stratocaster, or <laughs> did you like playing Little League baseball? Who was a, what was it like as a young Peter Gammons? I loved playing Little League baseball and I'd love to be out playing a lot. Now, we used to play games, one-on-one um, -on -one games. We would do major league lineups, and we had this thing right near my house. It was almost like a, a ballpark. Trees, uh, small trees lined up so that you had, like, the, the makeup of a ballpark. And we'd play one-on-one -on -one, um, tennis balls and, and, and bats, the broken bats that we'd slice and would be in half. And, you know, if, if, it, if, uh, if I were play, if let's say I were the, uh, uh, the Indians and, um, I, I and, and Roger Maris was playing in right field, which he was, which is where he started. Then, uh, then I would have to hit left-handed and it was really fun. And, you know, it was so much fun. And I remember this so well is that we kind of knew, okay, um, if my friend wanted to be the White Sox, they had Louis Aparicio. If I hit a ball, you know, to, it'll look like it might be in the hole. It's an out because it's Louis Aparicio. If if I were the Red Sox, somebody hit the hole, the shortstop was Don Budden, it's a base hit. And how we played the games then without really arguing over who was cheating, we kind of knew, okay, this guy's good. We, we 
it was for that love of the major league players. We knew enough about them so that we could play those games one-on-one and you know, it wouldn't be a big deal. It wasn't a huge argument over whether the ball was caught or not. And I loved to, I, it made playing the game so much fun as a kid. I mean, being whether it was 10 years old or 15 years old, we used to play those games all the time. And um, it was so orderly and uh, kind of, it, it made me appreciate um don't waste time. Just keep playing really fast and, and don't argue. <laughs> I'm sure I got thro- I I know I got thrown out of a couple of games in the, in high school, so that's all right. <laughs> so high school, you went to to uh, the Groton school. school. It was a boarding yep. school, and and I and doing my research, doing my homework here. FDR went there. And, and this is what I found fascinating. Herman Munster, who who I'm a big fan of. I think he attended your boarding school as well. Not at he the did. same time, but they're, no, they're no, alumni. Wayman, they're alumnus. Actually, was a, he was a renowned uh, actor, actually. And uh, Fred Gwynn, yes. Um, I, I, didn't, I never knew him. Um, I, did know, uh, I did know Seb Waterston, um, uh, who uh, later, of course, was on uh, several NBC shows. But uh, I actually was probably one of the, I actually, he was the uh, Groton School graduate of the year, the year before I was, which is, just kind of brings the whole thing about uh, Groton's academics standing down a little bit when my name's in there. (laughs) (laughs) You go on from there, you go to North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Now we're we're getting into what Peter Gammons, what his future is going to look like. How was your time at, at North Carolina? It was really good. And I, I was very, again, I was really fortunate. Um, I was writing for the, the school paper and we, I mean, actually I, I met a guy named Curry Kirkpatrick, who was a great writer for sports illustrated. But um, when I was a freshman and um, the, it was coming up on a Sunday game, and the Boston Patriots, as they were in that time, were going to play the Buffalo Bills. Curry was a Buffalo Bills fan. So we got in this argument about two fullbacks on the two teams. And uh, he said, well, why don't you just come over and try to write you know, our, our paper? We have 30, 32 pages a day. It's full size. This is a great place to, to, to get into writing. And I, so I got started there um, and uh, started writing. And, I was covering, I did, I covered a lot of, not only baseball, but I covered a lot of basketball and Dean Smith was unbelievable to me. I mean, he, he would go out of his way. Um, one time Frank DeFord, who was Sports Illustrated's, you know, number one writer in, in, as Dean was coming up, really establishing the program. And he was, he was coming to town to do a story on and Smith had me come over to his office. I had no idea what he wanted. He said, look, it, I mean, you could, you could sit and have lunch as we, he interviews me uh, for a couple hours and you could see sort of like, this is the way it's done. And, you know, about, I would say three, three and a half hours over two days. It was unbelievable to me as a college student have, a guy that was a phenomenal basketball coach, go out of his way to help me far more than I could have ever learned in the classroom. I mean, to, 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 be, to, to, to be able to witness the 
the uh, back and forth, the, the, the way the conversations went, the way Frank discussed things with him and how he, the interaction was, was, was fabulous to me. Years later, when actually I was talking to Frank about when he was running the national and I, I was talking to him, I told him that story. He said, I don't, re- I don't even remember you in, in the room. I said, I'm Peter Gammons. I'm a college student. You're, in my eyes, the greatest writer in America. And Dean Smith is like in the top five, top five of the country at that point. Why would I say anything? I mean, just keep my mouth shut and, and learn. And he laughed and he said, that's, that's kind of funny. And I said, it, that's, you know, that's sometimes there are, there are certain things when you have to know how, when not to make your presence felt. And that was one of those times. And Dean used to say to me, you know, you could be really good at, the, at, at what you do. And he really pushed me towards writing. And um, at, in uh, 1969, I, I, they, uh, I had spent an internship at the Globe uh, in 1968. Which I which I loved. Actually, got to cover Pele playing soccer for Brazil in Fenway Park. That was pretty amazing. But then uh, they called me up um, in January and said, "Can you start working two weeks?" And I said, "Could it be three weeks?" And I went up there and um, I arrived at the office and they said, um, "By the way, you never asked what we're going to pay you." I said, uh, "I never thought about it. I got I got the job. Who cares?" I mean, which I didn't. And uh, it started me off 50 years later. or I, I, I mean, three years later, I was covering the Red Sox full time. And uh, uh, this this is my 50th year in Major League Baseball. And uh, you know what? I enjoy it more than I, than I did then. I really do. Because the thing that most important, and I've been working on a book, and I, I backed off and um, started over again because the idea was writing about myself. And I, you know what? It's not about me. It's all, it, and, and I think if, when I get to it, when it gets done, the name of the book is going to be, it was always all about the players. Because that's what the game is. I mean, you, you understand this. You were a tremendous player. And people make so much of these other things. It's about players. That's why I go to the park. I once had a former manager – um, who, when I was working at, at ESPN, we have all the games up. We're watching all the games before the shows, and and there was a play. Some guy got doubled off at second base, and the, but the the view on the little television screens, you can't see where the other base runners were. You can't see where the outfielders. All you see is the guy get picked off second. And so the person said, "I mean, sometimes players are so stupid." I said, "Well, how do we know what happened?" We don't really. It's on TV. It's, it's not enough for us to see in, in this view. And he said, oh, Peter, that's your problem. You like players too much. And this was one time and I regret getting angry about it, but I said, you know what? I spent $250 a night for two seats in the eighth row in back of home plate at Fenway Park. And um, I don't spend $250 a night to watch a double switch. I spent two hundred fifty dollars a night to watch players play, and that's the way I feel now. And just you know, I mean, I spent um, about four hours uh, early at the ballpark yesterday with uh, 
with with different people from the Rays. It was a great day for me. I just the baseball conversations and the fun and the love of the, the pure joy of the game is just terrific. And uh, that's what I, I still enjoy um, the most. And uh, it could be major leagues. It could be the Cape Cod League. Um, and uh, it, it, just almost anywhere. And I I can say honestly that I got to watch uh, Aaron Boone pick up a ground ball and end the, uh, the uh, one season for the uh, for uh, the Cape Cod League short of first and uh, and the uh, season was over. So it was like uh, watching Bryant in uh, 2016. That's what I thought of after after his after Bryant made that that play. He had a smile on his face and your brother on that ground ball to him in uh, in Orleans, Massachusetts had that same smile someone and the reason I relate to it because it's just the, the love of the game and it's so interesting you say it is a it is all about the players uh, we recently had Donald fear on the on the podcast and and obviously it was in a different uh, context but he was explaining uh, labor law and and what the fans like and and what the owners think it's all about the players he said you could flip all the all the surrounding pieces you know the coaches the managers the gm uh the owner and it doesn't matter because the fans are there to see the players now you change the players out the fans care (laughs) it's just i don't know it was a different capacity but i thought a, a, a different you know line of questioning but but the same theme is it is all about the players and and that's what makes the game the game you're talking about the cape cod league uh, just an iconic league the cape cod league when i was coming up you know there were two leagues and and i know you remember this it was pretty much the alaska league or the cape cod league and the top players in the country go to one of the two i got to go to alaska i had a good experience but i always thought well what is that cape cod league i never got a, a chance to play and i remember you uh, a couple of years ago, my son was going to be uh, scheduled to play in the Cape Cod League because of the mm-hmm. pandemic and what went on. He didn't get a chance to do that. But I remember you uh, tweeting out about it or, or saying something that I'm going to get to see a young Jake Boone. And that kind of, you know, that I don't know, as a dad now and, a, and, and I'm a little bit older and a little bit wiser, a little more experienced. That was cool for me to see that, that that Peter Gammons is looking for the next boon coming down the line. I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. Well, you know, it, it, it is really fun. It's fun to see, you know, to, to see the kids and meet them. I love meeting the guys. I mean, just this summer, um, Trevor Hoffman's younger son, Wyatt, was playing. And Wyatt Small, he's a college senior. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he may sign and so forth, but he's, and I, I actually was talking about this with Brad Ausmus today. And I said, I mean, he walks in. A, I realize he, because he's a little older that maybe there's a leadership thing there, but he walks in a ballpark. Everybody's happy. I mean, why has one of those personalities? You probably know him. I mean, he's got one of those personalities that you just go, Oh, I mean, we're going to have fun today. We're at the ballpark. And, uh, uh, and it just, uh, it, it, I have, uh, there's a real joy in seeing it. I mean, uh, I missed in the summer, the, the guy that manages Falmouth called me yesterday because I, I, Kevin Cash had converted to catcher with this guy. And I had left him a message about, we were kid, I was kidding Kevin yesterday about, 
about the day that he converted to catcher on the Cape. And, uh, and he was talking about, he said, Hey, I mean, I wish you'd come over. Jack Armstrong's son who plays at Florida. He said, he's one of the greatest kids that I've ever managed. I mean, he just, and I know you remember his brother and so forth. And, you know, it just, it's just too bad you missed us in the second half of the season when he's there because you would have just been delightful. I and mean, you never, he would never would have stopped talking to you because he loves the game so much and it's just a joy. And it's really fun to see that. It's fun to see generations, particularly, and I go back to the business of being able to go out and shag and, and throw some batting practice and, you know, be shagging with Dwight Evans and, you know, so there's a line driving into the outfield and the ball ends up sailing like 40 feet over my head. Dwight's back there catching it in position to throw back to the infield. And, you know, I can always say, you know what? This game is really hard. And secondly, as I once said to Jim Rice, who was complaining about something that we were doing on television, I said, Jim, you're a great athlete, high school All-American football player, great baseball player. You didn't play any harder in high school than I did. I just stunk. I wasn't good enough. And so you, you, this may sound funny to you, but you have no idea how much respect I have for anybody who played one day in the major leagues. And because that's an incredible skill. <laughs> it's really difficult to play. And uh, actually, I was, I was talking to, uh, to Kyle Schneider about it yesterday, and we were talking about guys playing 10 years in the major leagues. I think uh, that every player who plays 10 years, that ought, we know that that qualifies you to be on the Hall of Fame ballot. I think every player should get about five to 10 blown up, sort of really nice copies of that ballot each time they're on it so that they can hang them on the wall to their other son's rooms. I did that. Actually, I got three made for Carlos Pena when he was on the ballot. Carlos wasn't going to make it to the hall of fame. I don't know if he even got a, got a vote, but the point is he played enough to, to be on a hall of fame ballot. I mean, that should be something his family glories in and everyone should. I, I had with, uh, with a couple of players this year, I, I I called them and said, "You realize now you're going to be in the Hall of Fame ballot, you know, whenever you retire, five years afterwards." And you know, they both said, "Geez, I didn't think of that." And it's it's just the appreciation of the game and how tough it is is just uh, it's fun to see. There are guys um, you probably saw guys in Alaska that that really struggled. I mean, I remember. Um, you know, seeing people that hit like 130 in the Cape League and later became good players. I saw Randy Johnson pitch in Alaska in 80, whatever, after his freshman year. And in Palmer, Alaska, <clears throat> and he was not good. I mean, one pitch, 95, three next fastball, somewhere in the 70s. I mean, it was, you know, and... I always used to say on, on when I was at ESPN, he, he wasn't born great. The work he had to have put in to become great it boggles my mind. Considering fast forward from seeing him pitch in Palmer, Alaska, to seeing him pitch in spring training with the Montreal Expos, still blows my mind. And 
you know, when he was in the Hall of Fame, we talked about it at length. And about just say kidding me about always talking about Alaska. I said, yeah, but that's what makes it great. I mean, you see guys that, that it was really tough for them, and they overcome it. And it's uh, it, there's so much that goes into overcoming adversity in baseball uh, that I, I really respect. And you know. Probably the longest chapter I'll ever write is about just how insecure baseball makes people. It seems like, you know, we had Jason Stark on. Uh, we had Timmy Kirkchen, you know, two, two big fans of Peter Gammons and, and colleagues of yours. <laughs> but it seems to be, uh, you know, talking to, to the three of you, it's the same thing. It's that appreciation and the respect for the players and how hard the game is. That, that I seem to hear over and over. And it's cool because as players, you know, we're in a bubble and, and we're just out there and this is our job and this is what we do. And man, we grind so hard in this game. You're right. Even in my, some of my best years, uh, you know, I was a kind of a happy go lucky brash, you know, I had a personality, but I didn't, I learned, especially as I got older, uh, not to take this game, not, not to take myself too serious. Enjoy the highs because they're rare to, to have that big-time season start to finish. It doesn't happen because I know how hard this game is. And and I just flip over my bubblegum card if I need to be reminded how hard it is because I had some real lean years and I had some big-time years. But but when when those years were going well, I, I had a, enough uh, self-deprecation to say – you know, this game isn't like this all the time. It is so hard. It, and it's cool to hear people that have followed this game and have made this game their life appreciate how hard this game is because it really is. It really is. Um, Boston Globe, you get your start there. And another interesting thing you said I thought was cool was I didn't care what I was making. I mean, that's me in the minor leagues. I'm sleeping on couches, and I don't know what I'm making, Peter, at the beginning at A-ball at Peninsula. Uh, in that Carolina league, I think I was making seven fifty a month, and the last thing on my mind was how much money I was making. And and I got to the big leagues, and I didn't care what the minimum was. I knew it was better than seven fifty, but at that time in your life, you're not worried about that. You're worried about chasing your dreams and and doing what you wanted to do for a living so i completely can relate to to you saying i don't care what i was making they hired me i was i was working at the boston globe biggest newspaper sports newspaper in the country um let's get into that a little bit red Sox. uh your first tenure with the globe was was 69 to 75 i believe and talk to me a little bit about Red Sox Nation, what that means. I mean, you're covered. You got the Celtics, the Bruins, and, and obviously the Boston Red Sox. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories from Ray Boone. I want to hear them from Peter Gammons. Well, it was um, – it was uh, the seasons I covered the Red Sox the first time were 72 through 76. Actually, I left the Sports Illustrated in September of 76, although I was back – um, in seven, I missed, I, I missed baseball. I missed the beat. And I think one of the things, and I, just to go back about both of us starting out, I think because both the newspaper business and baseball are such day-to-day propositions that you don't sit there for weeks and think about things. You're, you're right back 
no matter what happens, you're right back in it the next day. If I wrote a story about college basketball game, and I thought I wrote a lousy story, um, get up the next day and I, you know, I, you got to work it. You, you work either another college basketball game, maybe a college hockey game, whatever the next day. Um, I think, I think that's really good when you're young and you're starting out that you just got to get up and do it again. And, and, and you don't have time to brood and worry about, Oh boy, I can't believe I did that. Um, and it, you know, obviously it's a challenge. I'm, I'm going to make it, I'm going to be really good when I get up tomorrow. Uh, but, um, I think that helps, but it's the Red Sox were, they were coming off. They had one in 67 and that where they went from, from ninth to first. And it was a, was Karius Tremsky's magical year and so forth. And then they had been disappointments. 72, um, my first spring training in season, um, they they went down to the last weekend in Detroit. They had come from behind, and Yastrzemski and, uh, got healthy, and uh, they, they lost out at the end. But it was really fun for me. Um, and, and the city got really revived on the team. They had a lot of young players. I, I covered a team where you know, I really pretty close to the same age. I mean, Carlton Fisk and Cecil Cooper and, and, uh, and John Curtis and Lynn, they had a lot of guys, younger players that came up at the same time. And that was fun because I was the youngest writer probably covering the team by a good 20 years. And so I had a generational advantage to some degree. Um, but it was also a very tough time. In Boston, there was school busing, and the city was extremely divided, and it was a really rough time. And one of the most important people, and to this day, one of, you know, would be in my top ten of players that I loved covering on a basis was Louis Tian, and he changed a lot in that city. He, I mean, it it got ugly. The Red Sox were having a little trouble because of the busing, because of some racial problems. It was. It, it was an ugly time in the city. And, you know, you know, Fenway Park is sitting right in the middle of downtown Boston. And Tion just, he became the guy, he was the must-see. I mean, in 72, when he went on his big run from um, um, in the second half of the season, when, when he uh, pitched, I mean, they would sell every game. And they would, when he started walking out to the bullpen, the whole everyone in the ballpark would stand up and chant Louie, Louie. It became this incredible phenomenon. Whether it was he was facing Catfish Hunter or Jim Palmer, it was a show that brought back a, a, a lot that was positive. There was there were things that happened there. Reggie Smith was a victim of a lot of racial unpleasantness, and yet Reggie was such a remarkable person. He led a delegation of players. Unbeknownst, nobody never got publicity. I didn't know it until I found out about it three years ago. Um, and they went, he, Bobby Orr, a couple of members of the Patriots, they would go to schools all over the city and, hey, come on, no, no violence, no stay in school, you know, all this. And they, he was the guy who formed it. And uh, I guess, you know, Dusty Baker always reminds me, next to Henry Aaron, he was the best teammate I ever had. So, uh, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm proud to know about it now, but it was a tough time. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, but they came up with all these players. 
Dwight Evans came up at 72, and then Fisk came up at 72. And then, uh, uh, again, you had Burleson and, and Fred, Fred Lynn and Jim Rice came up at 75. And they got to the Great World Series at 75. And, I mean, that just made covering so much fun. It was an electric year, Bill Leave was colorful, but he was really good, too. Uh, and uh, it was just such a joy, I mean, to, to cover that team. They were, they were huge. I mean, Fred Lynn comes back several times a year. They have a, a, a box where, you know, uh, former Red Sox players come back. He's still one of the most generous, um, enjoyable people. People still love Fred Lynn as if he had retired three years ago. And that's fun. That's a great deal of fun. And, and Tion is still an, an icon in the city. And uh, I was a year, away a year and came back. And then, of course, 78, they had a great year where they were way out in front. And then um, a bunch of players. Evans got beamed three times and uh, had trouble second half. A bunch of pitchers got hurt. And they, they uh, went from a 13-and-a-half game lead to a, a four-game deficit came back all the way so that they had to play a hundred, the 162nd game against uh, the Yankees and uh, Bucky Dent hit the home run. And, um, but you know what? I'm really glad I got to cover it. You know, it's uh, uh, like you said about the good days. Um, when you, when you covered a great game, it was really easy to write. People always kid me about the time, the seventh game of the 75 world series how short a time I was able to roll out 2,500 words about the seventh game. I, mean, I don't even remember, you know, and, and, and putting sentences together. It was so easy. It was just, it was, I had sat through one of the greatest games ever played, so dramatic, you know, 12.43 in the morning when Fisk hit the home run. I mean, it's really easy to write. The tough ones are when you got two guys that, have a three hour, 40 minute game on a getaway day. And you're heads to throw it ball one, ball two, ball three. It's 10 to three. Those are tough stories to write. I always used to say the old Warren Zevon line, uh, when you get to cover great games, you better enjoy them because you, in my life as a writer, I enjoyed every sandwich. You know, it's funny you say that, that the ability to put it to bed, you know, good, bad, and different. Because baseball is a grind. It's every day. And as I got older as a player and, and learned from from the veteran players that, that I was kind <clears> of <throat> – took me under their wing, I, I needed to learn to do that because it is such a grind. And we're going to have days where we go three for four and, and hit a three-run homer and win, you know, six to five. But tomorrow's a new day. And I can celebrate in the moment. I can have a good time after the game with my teammates, uh, enjoy it. But, but I, as I got older, I learned to compartmentalize that. And when I left the ballpark, okay, today was great, awesome day, but tomorrow's a new day. And hopefully we get, we get another one. But it helped me when I had a rough night. And, and we lost five out of six and. And I just went 0 for 4, and I struck out with a runner on third than less than two outs. Okay? I need to be able to put that to bed. When I leave the clubhouse, 
I put that to bed and that helped me in my career. It really did. It helped me, uh, you know, as I was maturing in the game and get more experience, it helped me to do my job and, and just learn that good, bad, and different. You know, the great players had that temperament somewhere in the middle. I don't expect you to be cranking the music and, and uh, dancing when, you, when you've just lost your eighth straight. But also when things are going good, realize that, that <laughs> it's all in, you know, it's, it, we've got to have a, a balance here. And the greatest players I played with had that balance where there was just somewhere in between, never too high never too low and i think the great ones have the ability to do that it's fast i mean <clears throat> just you must think back and go it, it what how amazing it was to be on a team that won 116 games and you knocked in up what 141 runs that year i mean it, it that's what that, that's an astounding year personally and in terms of a team and I, I, I mean, I always look back on that season and say, you know, it was, it was history. Uh, and for for anyone like you who had a really good year that year, to be on a team that was so great in the regular season. I mean, I know I remember the playoffs very well. Remember Roger Clemens coming in there and all that. But at the same time, it's just. It, the joy of 116 wins to me is just incredible, and the, just the, the the good the good memories of that season must be just tremendous for you. Well, it was unbelievable. It, it was it was almost like a movie because it it we win 20 games in April, you know, hey, really good month. We win 20 games in May, and now. I, I'm going through. I, I had played on some great Cincinnati Reds team, uh, uh, a great '99 Braves team that went to the World Series. But I had never, you know, we get to the midseason in that 2001 year. I, I had never been a part of anything like it was like magic, and and almost we'd get to the clubhouse and that group of 25 that year. It wasn't an arrogant group. It was a very confident group, but it was kind of like. You know, it, it went without words. It wasn't, we had to talk about it and talk about how good we were doing. It was kind of a, uh, you know, just that, a stare, a look like you realize what's going on here and let's not mess with this because none of us have ever seen a, a winning games at this clip in our careers. And I had, there were some veterans on that. We were a really good team. We had gold glovers. We had all-stars. We had hall of famers. We had batting champs on that team. But we also had a very veteran team that had been through the rigors of baseball, been through a lot of a, a lot of baseball adversity. So we appreciated the good times. But I remember it was <clears throat> sometimes we'd kind of <clears throat> Johnny Olerud was my partner on the right side of the infield that year. One of the greatest human beings I've ever been around. And uh, to say to say humble would be <clears throat> not not doing him justice. But he would give me a look sometimes, even John Olerud. Like, do you realize how good we are? <laughs> and I would just <laughs> laugh at him. Like, I can't believe I've never seen anything like this. It was the seventh inning, Peter, and we're down by three. And we're not, you know, ranting, ranting in the dugout. We're not talking a big game. We're just kind of looking at each other like, you know, we're going to come back and get these guys and win again, don't you? And, and the look that I would get back from a teammate was, 
Well, of course we are. We do this every night. And more times than not, we'd come back. It's almost like the other team knew they were going to get beat. The only thing that's that boggles my mind, it was such a storybook year, is how we didn't finish the deal. And I remember sitting on that bus in New York, almost shell-shocked, like – this didn't just happen. This is a storybook year. We're supposed to finish. We're supposed to win the first World Series in, in Seattle history and do the parade downtown. It's already been written. And uh, that was the longest bus ride. And, and I think that team in particular, they were shocked because our season had gone so well. Um, we still got the 116 games. We can always we can always talk about that. It was a great year. You know, some of my years in Seattle, a lot of wonderful uh, relationships I forged there. And I'll never you'd never be able to take that away from that group of guys. But man, it, it still when we get together and we talk about it, we, we still have that. How did we not win at all? You know, we're supposed to. We handled the Yankees all year in the regular season, and uh, we just didn't play our best we went to the Bronx in, in that second round of the playoffs, but uh, it's fun to talk about. All right. 78 did, or I'm sorry, we're, we're getting caught up in all these stories. You go to Sports <laughs> Illustrated, your lead columnist. How'd they lure you away from the globe for that brief, that brief uh, time in, this, in the mid-70s? I think it was just the fascination with working with Sports Illustrated. I, there were two or three people that I actually worked with um, on the Daily Tar Heel in Chapel Hill, um, including uh, Corey Kirkpatrick. And so, you know, it, it sounded great. Mark Mulvoy was, uh, was one of the editors, and he's a Boston guy, and I worked with his brother. So it was, um, uh, it was, it was a natural thing, but at the same time, um, I got there, and actually I, I covered quite a bit of hockey, which I actually like. I, I played it, and I, I liked it. But um, I really miss the daily. The, I miss the daily grind of the of the baseball. I miss going to the ballpark every day and and uh, um, the the thrill. I mean, I found writing a lot of times very competitive because you know you'd have to write first edition stuff during the game. They called it running, and then you'd have to you know, go down to the club clubhouse or clubhouses and uh, interview guys in Fenway Park, of course. They didn't have elevators, so they had to go down through the stands and and then come running back up and and get it done before the deadline. And I love the competition of that, and um, it was I, I really missed it, and I missed every day. I mean, the Red Sox were really a good team, plus the audience. I mean, you know, the, there were really good teams in that city, but at the same time, the Red Sox were and still are the most important beat in the city. And even with all the Patriots did, the Red Sox have been, are still, that's the beat that uh, is number one. And uh, so I miss it and I came back and I'm lucky I did because uh, 78 was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, starting with in spring training when they, they traded four guys for Dennis Eckersley. And that was, uh, <laughs> talking about setting off a, a lot of fun around. Uh, once Eck walked in, it was like a, a whole different team just because he was so funny and so colorful. But, uh, uh, and I, I then went through until 1986 when I decided, okay, now I'll go for good to uh, Sports Illustrated. But, I mean, those years were really good. Sometimes 
the, some of those Red Sox teams were pretty bad, pretty boring. But at the same time, it was still baseball every day, and weird things happened. Um, and uh, I got to see the one game that Gaylord Perry got ejected from. Um, <laughs> that was the strangest story I ever. I think I ever wrote. I'll tell you it. So, in the top of the fourth inning, Reed Nichols of the Red Sox asked Dave Phillips, the umpire, for the to inspect the ball. Phillips gave um, then gave Gaylord a warning. Now they come to the seventh inning. Game is tied, and the bases are loaded. Rick Miller's up. Rick Miller hit Gaylord Perry very well. Got the three and two. And Gaylord throws a pitch to drop like a foot. And Dave Phillips ejects him from the game. Well, that's a, it's a huge story. <clears throat> so um, most people were just going to stay upstairs because Gaylord and, and Renee Lashman and so forth would have their press conferences. They'd be played. Them. I, no, I, the story, why did Reed Nichols call for the ball? So I went down and I, I, the little spot outside the visiting clubhouse, Reed comes in and I said, Reed, I mean, this is all, this is you. I mean, why did you call for the ball? And he said, I was standing in left field in the bottom of the third inning, and a voice came and he that, that quoted scripture, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. So somehow um, religion came into Gaylord being ejected from the only game he was ever ejected in. And it, it was worth running down, going down and doing that because – it was the strangest story I've ever written in my life. But, and today I, I, I could still hear Reed Nichols saying that and thinking, you know, it's not my job to decide just whether this makes any sense. He said it, so I better get back up and get into the two o'clock edition back east. And I did. Wow, isn't it? it, it it's so. You fast forward to today's game and this big issue we just had with the spider tech, and I can't tell you how many how many times I've been asked, well, what do you think, and this and that, and, and I'm going, guys, this is this goes back 100 years, and it's a cat and mouse game. And, of course, you know, now all of a sudden pitchers can't use anything. Well, I thought the rules are you never have been allowed to use anything. <laughs> I know that the guys are using stuff. The The game is – Catch him using it. How can we do that? Not too many people are just going to have a, a a hardware store in their back pocket. It's going to be subtle. I'll tell you, I was a part of it. If I had a teammate that needed me to help him with a ball situation, with a sticky substance, with a, you know, the big thing for me was to the catcher, hey, in between innings, hopefully the, the guy on deck isn't watching, but skip the throw to me. I'll pick it out of the dirt. I can get a scuff because certain pitchers like scuffs. So if I get a scuff, even for was for one batter, I do my part as a teammate. Now, when he's traded to another team, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> I know what you do. I'm not going to out you here, but as long as my team's in town, don't even try any of that. And as a hitter, it made me much more aware. And today you see it, Peter, with the umpires. It's almost automatic if the ball even comes close to touching the ground, it's thrown out of play. Well, back, you know, years ago, that wasn't the case. As a hitter, it was your responsibility to get the ball. So I became, because I was a part of it, trying to help my team, uh, I, I would be vigilant about watching and I, I would never if that ball ever touched the ground that'd be thrown right out of play 
uh, interesting. You were at kind of the, I don't know if that's the staple for, for getting caught, but uh, th- this spider attack thing, there's so many different things. I just don't know how you would force it. Um, what is a sticky substance? Do we have to send it to a lab? Was it made? Did it come from another player? Uh, I don't know. I just think there's so many moving parts. I don't know how you really monitor it unless you actually, like you did in that game, catch it on his person. What have you thought about this this recent thing going on with the pitchers in baseball? Well, I understand it. And part of it was that early in the season, they were worried about not enough runs being scored and too many strikeouts. And they thought, well, this will really change it. It changed things to some degree. But um, it doesn't change the strikeout. I mean, strikeouts might not be quite as high, but there's still there are a lot of guys who are who are trying to get create ridiculous launch angles. Uh, I keep reminding them Ted Williams was five to nine percent, not seventeen to twenty five percent. But that's a, that's another story. But it's what they need to do is just. Figure out, experiment, find baseballs that, that, that can be gripped. It's not that hard to do. Just say, this is what we're going to do. It'll probably be more like the, like the Japanese ball. But that's, that's what, uh, I mean, they can do it. They can, they can change the baseball. Pitchers and hitters, everybody can, can like it, can be very happy with it. All right, so we do our second tenure at SI. Now, ESPN. 1988, uh, mentioned earlier, Kirkjian and Stark had them on the program, and uh, they were some of the first to make that that crossover from sports writer to to now. You go from pen and paper to to the makeup chair. They were some of the first, but but both of those guys that I had on the program says, but Peter was the original. Why Peter Gammons to be the first? columnist that crosses over into the into the uh kind of the hollywood now you're on you're on camera bringing news of baseball it's pretty interesting you're the pioneer well it was great fun for me john walsh was running espn and, and they knew espn was going for the baseball contract um starting in in 1990 and um so in 1988 he hired me i did Part-time stuff, but I did the All-Star Game and the and the playoffs, the World Series, and uh, uh, things like that. Uh, did a couple, of, you know, hits every week, um, and uh, it was like it transformed me. In, and I, you know, it was. It, it, I remember somebody telling me, and it really helped me, that um, they that what they did is they shot me talking to fans at, in spring training of 88. They, I didn't realize I was being, they had a camera rolling on me talking to people. And they said, that's who you are. You're talking, people come up and ask you about baseball. You talk to them. I mean, you're, you like to talk to the fans. You talk to people. It's, um, that's what your, that's what your, your role in television is. And I mean, it was stiff at first to some degree, but it was, um, that's how I, how I learned is to let this, as if I'm just talking to guys out there that love baseball the way I loved it. And, uh, I'm having conversations and, um, it was fun. I, I was also very lucky because, um, I got to participate after I was there a couple of years in 
who also would come from print to um, to ESPN. And um, so I was uh, I'm very I'm very thankful that I was given the opportunity to uh, recommend Timmy and Jason, <laughs> who are two of my longest uh, time friends in the business. I probably I actually said when I when I got the award in, in Cooperstown in 2005, I I think I, I, I know I said that I, it, there was a period of about 20 years of my life where I probably talked to Jason more than I talked to my wife. Um, so uh, it was it was really great to be able to have um, people like that come in with me so that it was. But I also knew and I think it's really important. It, it, it just we're all people who just ha- had joy in what we did. And we love the game, and just uh, as we've been talking about, and that I think that for baseball tonight to start that way as a celebration of baseball was very important to the evolution of that program, which, as you know, in the '90s was a huge show, and it just um, John Walsh was he was a once was the editor of Rolling Stone as well, but he. Uh, he really was a genius, and but he understood a show like that because it's different. They hadn't had a show like that before. It had to be a celebratory show, and just have a lot of fun. Of course, we had to be critical and and about certain things, but it was also just it had to be high energy and it had to be joy, and um, that's what it was. And uh, it was it was really fun. It was a great experience to be at ESPN and the opportunity, it was, it was, uh, it was a tremendous 20, whatever, however many years I was there, 20 something years. It was, it was truly great. And, um, you know, fascinating to just, you go out and, and, you know, they want you to do those Sunday conversations in the times at times. And, you know, to have experienced those things with people like Albert Bell, who I actually really liked, um, but it was it was a lot of stuff you just never forget. There were certain people that were always great and accessible. For some people, it was it was not easy, but it doesn't matter. It was still a, a great experience, and it was a growing experience because ESPN went from. I mean, when I was first there in '88, um, the evening sports center was from seven until seven fifteen. So. Obviously, the, the, the network changed a little bit in the time I was there. Not because of me, but because uh, uh, just the sports television. It, it, it created the sports television boom that uh, Walsh and other people who are running ESPN thought it would. And it's also a very fortunate experience for being in on that. Well, I'll tell you, you were the, you were the face of ESPN baseball. Now, as a base, as a player... You know, I grew up in that in that world, obviously, but I remember the first time uh, when I was a young player in Seattle in, in 1992. And I never, you know, I go anywhere. I go to breakfast. I go to lunch. You know, I'm just coming up from the minor leagues and I didn't deal with it. And all of a sudden I went to a Starbucks and somebody recognized me. Hey, you're the you're the kid. They just got called up. I was like. Well, yes, I am. <laughs> that was different for me being recognized. How was it for Peter Gammons going from writer for the Globe? Now all of a sudden, 
you're, you're kind of a TV star. You are the face of ESPN baseball. When did you first discover that? And, and how was that for you? Um, it, it was okay. I mean, you know, sometimes you just, uh, you, you're kind of thinking about things, but it's okay. I mean, um, and sometimes it could be a little bit, um, in terms of, uh, people would, you know, yell things at me from the stands and so forth. I remember I had, I had picked right from the beginning. I picked John Smoltz to win a Cy Young and he started out two and 13. I think it was 92, but I'm not, and there was a day at Fenway, I was doing a bunch of interviews on the field on the third base side, and there were a bunch of fans, and they were screaming at me, calling me every name. You were John Smoltz. Yeah, John Smoltz, blah, blah. And I'm, and I'm trying to do interviews, and these people are swearing at me and all the rest. And so, you know, this wouldn't be bad to not, not be recognized as having pitched picked Smoltzy to win the Cy Young. But Smoltzy did pay me back because when he, the first time he won it, he started out his press conference by saying, I'd like to apologize to Peter Cavins for taking so long to win this award. I always submit to a lot when they... <laughs> it, was just, it was pretty hard watching Smoltzy when he was young to not say, this guy is really special. And so... And now I'm lucky enough to work with him, so it's uh, which I really enjoy. And I had to face him in the '90s, rolling into Atlanta. It's that Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, and oh, I remember that. It was, you know, that was back before our computers, and we just got our newspaper. We got USA Today, and I would, ah, man, I'm going to Atlanta in 12 days. Okay, let me start counting the days. Who's pitching today? All right, so it goes Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. Uh, and and then I'd get to when, when we were going to Atlanta, and nine times out of ten, Peter, it was like Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. And I, and I would just think, come on, and and a great pitcher in his own right. But I'm like, please, let me let me face Merker the first night. But it always seemed <laughs> like it fell on those three guys. Yeah, you didn't get Matt Murray very often in, that, in those games. Oh, no, no. And, and I would. I'd count it out. Two, two weeks in advance to see if we were going to miss one of the big three. It was amazing. So that was ESPN glory days. It was Chris Berman. It was Miller and Morgan. That was such a time in sports, time in baseball history. I was in the minor leagues, and that our whole life revolved around that. I mean, we'd go to a, we'd go to a uh, game in A ball. You know, we'd get dressed, get on the bus in full uniform, get dropped off in Kinston. We didn't have a clubhouse. <laughs> you know, we'd eat our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the dugout, hit batting practice, have another PB&J and get ready for the game, play the game, get back on the bus. And we had to get back to watch SportsCenter and ESPN. We had to see what the big boys were doing, you know, especially our parent club. All right, what did he do today? You know, I had Harold Reynolds was the second baseman in Seattle. What did Harold do tonight? It was such a man. It's such a cool time in, in my in my experience. Um, did you realize that th- that there were a bunch of us coming up in the minor leagues that our whole world was getting to see you tonight on baseball tonight or or, or Sports Center and give us a play because that was our only outlet. I got a pretty good sense of it. I would hear from people, and it's part of I loved it. 
for that, you know, especially for that, for, you know, because I mean, uh, when I first started, the first notes column that I ever wrote was in 1970 and 71. I would do one on the Red Sox minor leagues. I would do one for the Sunday paper every week. And I used to go to a ton of games. They had Pawtucket and Double A, and they had uh, um, they had Louisville and Triple A. But you know, I could get in touch with all the people down there. And, I mean, um, I always yeah loved the minor, and then I would hear about how they you know people would get back and watch it, and I thought it was really great. Uh, just the, the idea that you know people who were playing the game were watching us, and it was a it meant a lot to me. Two thousand nine. Uh, you leave ESPN. You go to the MLB Network. Twenty-four um, hour baseball. What, what were the differences going from ESPN? Um, it really wasn't that different. It, it was. Um, it was a lot of fun because there were so many players that to work with, and a lot of guys. I mean, I covered and everything. So, that, um, although, I mean, I went from being there in the studio in the playoffs one year when Al Leiter made his uh, television d- debut for ESPN. And then, of course, I go over there and I'm back with Al Leiter. Um, I have to make sure I cover Jack Leiter when he pitches in the big leagues. But uh, uh, it, it, was, it was fun. It was, they, the fact that you didn't have to worry about baseball tonight being postponed for 40 minutes because the Women's Basketball League game went into overtime, did really make it a little bit e- easier to you were on a regular schedule as opposed to worrying about high. I mean, there were times when when NHL playoff games would go until like 2 o'clock in the morning. So you'd be sitting there waiting. After inning baseball games sometimes, they were, uh, I can remember sleeping in this little, you know, like cabinet where uh, we had to wait to see what happened um, and, uh, and then close off the show. But it was it was really fun, and, and MLB Network's been great, and, and they care so much, and there are so many good people that, that are there that I really I enjoyed it. They treated me extraordinarily well, uh, and uh, I have a lot of friends. I mean, I can remember um, 1995, um, and um, Indians, Mariners. Randy Johnson, Charles Nagy, game six. Harold Reynolds, who I had known as a player and had become a good friend of mine, drove up from Portland, Oregon, to watch the game with me. Um, and um, and I convinced Harold, you, you don't want to go back to Colorado and be a non-roster invitee. You, you should be on television. And, you know, he was, oh, I could still... But he ended up doing it, so I'm one a day I don't forget because uh, Harold's been one of my best friends since, and uh, it's a, that's that's a long time back. But uh, so w- we go back a long way, and uh, and two different networks. So uh, uh, that's been a lot to me too. I mean, I, I do remember Charles Nagy was pretty amazing. He outlasted a lot of great pitchers in, in big games in his life. He outlasted Mike Mussina in a one hitter in the ALCS as well. And uh, the the Indians went to the World Series in uh, 97. Timmy McCarver, Joe West, both on the Boone podcast. 
now Peter Gammons, something in common, musicians, albums. How did you and uh, Theo Epstein hook up musically? I believe it was in 2006. Well, what happened was um, I was doing, a friend of mine convinced me to do a fundraiser back in, it was uh, 2000. And some people have golf tournaments. I, we had a, a rock and roll concert. And then about the third year, um, the musicians that I had convinced me to come out of retirement and start playing again. And um, so we, and these concerts, we have hot stove, cold music, we're raising a lot of money. 2004, Theo and his twin brother, Paul, asked me to join there. They were starting something called the foundation to be named later. And, you know, so we, they asked me to join up hot stove, cool music, which was the brand that I sort of built, uh, or we had built. Um, and so we joined up and, um, it didn't hurt that in the first year, of course, the Red Sox won the world series. So that, that, that made it a little bit, uh, more popular, but, and then I, you know, I had, Played a lot. I was playing a lot then. Recorded a CD or two, and and uh, um, just had a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's been amazing. I mean, every uh, when we're back, we'll, we'll be back doing live concerts. And uh, we normally do one in Boston, one in Chicago every year. And you know, we're always sell out. And um, we've had a lot of great played with a lot of great people. Um, Bernie Williams is absolutely incredible. To me. He uh, he plays with us, and uh, he's astounding. The guy's won. He's won four World Series rings. He's won two batting titles. He won three Gold Gloves. He's got three Grammy nominations. And three years ago, in Chicago, Bernie and I got to play with Buddy Guy, and it's expected to be one of the great thrills of my life. But. Um, the thing, it's all, you know, Buddy, we've gone through the five songs, and Buddy leaves. Bernie walks across the stage and says, Peter, this is the greatest thing that I've ever done. This is the greatest moment of my life. And I'm thinking, I, I, don't, I don't have any gold gloves or anything like that. It's Bernie Williams. But it, it was, um, there is really something about, really fun about being up and playing. I'm not the lead guitarist by any means. Um, but uh, it's it's just fun. I enjoy it. And uh, um, there is a thrill to it, uh, to being a, a thrill that you can really understand much better than I, of being out there. I mean, you know, it, 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 there are times when you think, you know what, the only thing people's got, people are going to remember is if I screw up. And uh, um, I, I, that's, a, that's a fun challenge. To not screw up, forget the words, or play the wrong chord. Um, and I've been lucky enough to play with a lot of great people, uh, um, whether whether it was Buddy Guy or, or uh, Derek Trucks and people like that. Um, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. We have a, a great deal of fun doing it. We made a ton of money for the foundation meeting later and the, the, the inner city programs that I mean we've um, th th that we donate to there's a place called the base in Boston, which is just astounding for inner city kids. And, and, uh, you know, we had one of our, uh, one of our guys, uh, get two point, get $2.6 million out of the draft this year. Uh, 
um, and be the number one student in a private school league uh, class. And, uh, you know, those are things that we've raised well over $20 million for kids over the years in the inner city. And so it makes it even more beneficial, just so, or no, much more fulfilling to have done these things. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's enabled starting, getting that, getting that call in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, can you start in two weeks and then be able to do what we do now is, um, uh, when I pulled, when I pulled that car and trailer out of, out of Chapel Hill, never did I think there would be something called a Gammon scholarship in my name. And, um, 250 kids would be going to college. Uh, um, you never think it would be possible, but it just means that, uh, uh, I've had a great life and it's, it's all really fulfilling and, uh, um, you know, how lucky I am. It's really, I'm 76 years old and, um, I, I'm lucky to have, uh, had the experiences and known the people that's, you know, just, you understand it entirely, but just under looking at baseball games, understand, understanding that these people are, that the players are people. They're not numbers. They're not war. They're not, um, you know, it's, it's so human. I'm, I'm doing stuff about catchers and, you know, the people like things to be quantified now and make judgment about players based on qualifications that overlook so much. And, um, I mean, catching, for instance, um, it's the catcher's job is not putting up big numbers. The catcher's job is, is the pitcher. And, you know, Brad Osmond said, I always thought the best. The catcher's job is to create conviction in the pitcher. And I once asked Johnny Bench about it. He said, hey, your friend is a Phi Beta Kappa. I'm a high school graduate, but could you, you use that quote from Osmond and put it under my name? <laughs> Only Johnny Bench could do that, but, you know, just because he's so funny. But it's, it's, and I was actually, we were talking about it for at length yesterday at the ballpark about just that. Mike Zanino was hitting 199. But one of the reasons the Tampa Ray, the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff is so good. He's got to catch probably his 58th guy in three years, um, this weekend. And, um, I did ask Kevin Cash, do you think that he knows who they all were? And he said, I don't, so I don't think he did. Uh, does, but, uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing because that is so human. Um, and I love to listen to Brad talk about the one thing in, in, in the grind of catching, but the day off every week was, uh, or once a week was Roy Oswald because Roy never threw a pitch in his life. He didn't think it was going to be perfect. So the catcher didn't have to work on creating conviction because he had total conviction in himself and his, and his pitches. And it's all, I, I love to watch pitchers and try to judge how convicted they are by their, by their body language. And I think for me, when I played, you know, it was, I was very aware of, of everything around me, the positions that, you know, the nuances of the game, but I, not until recently have I really, had a had a deep appreciation for the catching position and of course my dad caught a long time was was great uh one of the one of the great receivers <clears throat> but i've really realized how important that is to have that pitcher the ultimate trust from that pitcher when you're that catcher 
what the difference in that game is because let's let's be honest what controls the game <laughs> a great pitcher a great number one starter on that night always has the advantage and i don't care if it's an all-star lineup coming but those two being in sync that back and forth almost no you know i try to couple it and i don't even know if it's a, it's a fair analogy the, the second base shortstop relationship when i played in cincinnati I had a different relationship with Barry Larkin than I've ever had with any shortstop I've worked with. And I've worked with a lot. It was one of those things. It was a known thing. We'd give each other a look. We knew where one another was going to be. And, and without getting hokey, you know, it was. I could, I could play my game, take big risks, and I knew Barry was going to be there. I didn't have to make a perfect throw. Because if I made a, 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 a throw up the line, off the back, Barry was going to put his, his body in position to make it look like a perfect throw. And guess what I did as a result of that confidence? I usually made a perfect throw because I knew my partner, if I didn't, he was going to make it look per- – it's such a underrated thing. And I think the catcher-pitcher relationship even takes it to a different level. And I, and I really, especially as I move on, I'm always learning in this game, Peter. And, and I've learned this to really have an appreciation for that catching position and, and think you're right. Whatever they can give you offensively, usually that catcher hits down in the lineup. Whatever they give you offensively is a bonus. If you've got a really good receiver back there. Well, absolutely. And, and understanding, you know, what, what the pitcher, what is, I mean, it, it, you can't just say this is what he should throw. It's that day. Pitchers are very different from day to day. Just, uh, and uh, um, to understand that. And, and, you know, you could come up with game plans, which you know, teams like the Rays do, but it, it's all about the, what does that guy, what does that pitcher have that day um, and, how different is it? I mean, I mean, I can, you could someday see a, a guy, a guy who's normally, you know, throws a ton of cutters. Just you know what? They're they're looking for my cutter, so therefore I'm able to to dot in and out, in and out, up and down. I can do the four quadrants for my fastball, and they're still waiting for the cutter. And I'm in the sixth inning and I'm in pretty good shape. It's every day is different. And for the catcher and the dogs, I mean, uh, again, um, uh, Kyle Snyder was saying the relationship between pitching coach and catcher is important because the catcher still sees things that no pitching coach can Not see. And, and no one on who said, well, this is what you threw last game. You can't determine pitches on a laptop. I mean, you can, you can make suggestions. These are your best pitches. You can study video, but in the, in the end, each day is completely different, and only the catcher really knows that. No, oh, and I, I could talk for hours about it. This is kind of my passion is the game inside the game, the the, the, the mental side, and, and the games I would play with these catchers. When I'd leave that on-deck circle, I had a plan. The only time I wavered from my plan was when I got a catcher that was thinking on my level. And, 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 you know, Jason Veritek is one that comes to mind for me. I was in Boston. It was a battle because he knew what I was up to. And it was the slightest thing. It was the body language I displayed. It was how I took a pitch. 
he could tell if I took a fastball, but he knew I was looking for a breaking ball. And he'd glance up at me. I'd look at him. I'd have to step out. Now the game starts. Here goes the cat and mouse. And, and now I might have to change my plan because Jason's thinking with me. I didn't like that as a hitter. I had a few pitchers that would think with me too. And I could see, I could see them see me, how I was setting up in the box. Uh, man, I, I could talk for days about that. We don't have enough time, but it's really, it's really <laughs> fascinating when you get inside the nuances of that hitter, pitcher, catcher relationship, and we're all playing chess with one another. It's, it's a great thing, and it's a fun thing. And, and to add to your Bernie Williams real quick, I kind of – I never won four World Series – but I know what it's like in the in the few times that I got a standing ovation. That feeling is I, I can't explain it. If you haven't gotten one, it'll send chills through your body. But I see what he was talking about being on that stage because it seemed like those rock stars they get that that standing o every night, and and it's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> so I I, I can kind of relate with Bernie without actually having done it. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, we were actually, we played a couple of times with uh, Eddie Vedder, too, and who's been a great help to us in our foundation. And he and Theo are, are very good friends. But there was the first time, I actually have a picture on my phone of um, Eddie is singing, and he's, you, you can see in the picture, I'm on one side and Bernie's on the other side. And Eddie just was turning back because he, he, turned to me and he said, did you know he's this good? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. And he's like, I told Bertie, that's like the ultimate compliment. I mean, Eddie Vedder's turning to me asking, did you know know Bertie was this good? I mean, he was blown away by it. So that was, it was kind of a fun moment having known Bertie really well for so long and knowing what a passionate museum, I mean, musician he is and, because his mother was a, a a music professor at the University of San Juan and all the rest. It's just, it's really fun. It's also one of the nicest people we could all meet. I'll tell you, Eddie Vetti, Eddie, Eddie Vetter, <clears throat> you know, he's Seattle. In my time in Seattle, he'd come down to the ballpark and we'd have him out. Eddie could hit. He could hit. We had him hit BP with us a few times in, in my years in Seattle. Eddie, Eddie's a hitter. <laughs> so he could relate. He was talking about Bernie, but... I remember the first time watching, like, all right, what's this going to be like? We give him a uni. You know, he's looking around what bat he wants to use. I'm like, oh, this could be a train wreck. He actually, he actually, he swung the bat like he knew what he was doing. And I know he's a big, <laughs> he's a big baseball fan. Oh, he is. And um, huge Cubs fan, of course. So that was, uh, um, that was quite an experience for him in, uh, in 2016. But, uh, yeah, uh, he's he is a remarkable person, and he's he's one of the most generous people that I, I I've had the pleasure of meeting. And um, so his um, couple of people uh, mentioned to him that "Wishless" is my favorite Pearl Jam song, and he once asked me. You know why? Because there's so many great lyrics. I mean, I, I wish I were the, the, the pedal break that you depended on and things like that in that song. And he, he asked me, we were actually watching a Cubs game at the time. He said, well, why is that your favorite song? And I said, 
Because it's you, Eddie. All those words that that it, the lyrics of that song are so phenomenal, so uh, so great, and, and so kind. I said, it's to me that that's that is the song that defines you. And so when we when he played uh, in 2017 uh, at our concert in, uh, in we actually had it in April because uh, the Cubs were in town um, playing the Red Sox. And uh, so he let me uh, sing a couple lyrics in there and play with him on that and that. So I've, I've always felt pretty good about that. But it is, it is one of my favorite songs of all time because I, I think it's one of the most positive songs about uh, what we all like to do in life. And uh, that is a major part of who Eddie Vedder is, is just um, always looking out for other people and wanting to, knowing that every day we could do something to help somebody else. 2006, um, big health scare for you, uh, brain aneurysm. And, and what I noticed was the huge outpouring from the baseball community kind of puts life in perspective. You know, we mentioned John Olerud earlier. Uh, he's been on the show, and, and he talked about, you know, his his experiences and what he went through. Um, how was that time in your life? It was, I mean, there's obviously a large blank um, because, um, you know, from when all of a sudden I got a headache driving to the gym and on, here on the Cape and probably waking up a couple weeks later. Um, but, um, people were great and, um, there, I was really lucky. I had an incredible doctor and, um, but there were things that, I mean, and, uh, one day, one of the first days that I could read mail and things like that, my wife brought over, there was a thin FedEx envelope and, um, it was villainy. I had no idea. So I opened it up and there's this chain with a, a cross. And it was one that uh, Don Mattingly was given when he was 17 years old. And he said it to me that, I mean, he said to me later, I couldn't think of what I could do. So that's, you know, that's all I could do. And uh, which was, it, it's as we speak right now, it is around my neck uh, and it has been ever since. And, um, it was, I went to a rehab hospital and, and, uh, um, you know, they told me it'll be a couple of years before, you know, you can go back on air. I was back on the air two and a half months after the aneurysm because of the doctor. And, um, now I, again, I was another part of my life that I was very fortunate and, uh, it was, uh, it was scary, but at the same time, I mean, it was, it, it the, the, Coming back from it was not, um, it was far easier because of, of medicine. I'm just always that lucky to have a great doctor because he cut right in and, 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 and got, and got the aneurysm and, and saved my life in a hurry. And he was great because he was also tough. He said, uh, my wife had driven me in because the people at the rehab hospital. So, oh, you know, you're going to take driving lessons. You might not be able to, and, he went in. He said, "You're fine. You have no problem. I got it clean." And uh, somebody once asked me, "He's got 
Put me ego. I, I would not want somebody operating my brain who's not an egomaniac. Thank you. Um, but he said to me, um, you know, next Tuesday. I mean, the, the, the White Sox going to be in town. You, you, your buddies with Ozzy Guillen, drive in, and nobody driving with you. You're fine. You're fine. Drive into Boston, 65 miles, Boston traffic. Go to the ballpark, and uh, and drive home. And that was like getting over the the, the fear, the, the the anything lasting. I mean, about I would say, I think. One week later, I went to the ballpark and and uh, get a, a, a hit for uh, for ESPN and from from Fenway Park. So uh, it was it was uh, yeah, it's scary, but at the same time, um, I went through. You, you go through it and you survive and and move on. And look what John Oler did. I mean, it's amazing that he had that aneurysm and. And Pat Gillick drafted him in the third round in in, uh, in Toronto, and he went out and played summer ball. And Don Welke, the who worked for Pat, followed him around. And I don't remember how many games. It seems to me it was thirty-seven, but it might have been more. And Don Welke, and he he copied the report for me. I still have it. And John Olerud never swung and missed. This like guy had an aneurysm, and like a year later. He played a whole summer and never swung a miss. So there's enough. Insp- speaking of John Oldwood, there's a lot of inspiration. I have remembered that very clearly. Uh, he was amazing. I played. You bring it back to the Alaska League. Johnny played for uh, that team in Pullman. I was on the goal panners, and and I heard the stories. We'd sit. We'd be in awe of John Oldwood. That swing, and then he'd come out and and he was their number one starter. And I always asked Rude, I said, could you have pitched? He goes, ah, I don't think so. I don't think I could pitch at this level. But what a what a player, what a man. Sports writer of the year, 89, 90, and 93. Uh, but the big one comes in 2004. You win the Spinks Award, uh, Baseball Writers Association of America. Uh, what was getting that call like? It was a tremendous thrill. Um and I was actually in Anaheim covering the winter meetings. And um, I got the call. And so they, they when I was going to do Sports Center at noon, um, they were going to announce it. And I was fortunate enough to have, um, you know, my phone was off, obviously, when I was doing a half an hour show from uh, the Marriott there in Anaheim. But um, some of the calls that were, yeah, on my phone. Remember the third message on my phone was from Junior, from Griffey. So uh, that was that meant something a lot, you know. I mean, uh, uh, it's those are things. Yeah, I mean, those are like the the the, the, the I call them perks, but um, that you have. I was fortunate too because I was it was the second to last year that the writers and broadcasters awards you were you were up on the stage the day when the players were being inducted in the Hall of Fame. So I was lucky and I'm sitting there waiting. I believe uh Jerry Coleman was the first he got the broadcaster and then um Ryan Sandberg, um, he made his speech, I was gonna be third. 
But for all the time that all while the speeches were going, I had George Brett and Kirby Puckett in back of me. And they were leaning forward and whispering in my ear, you know, just don't screw this thing up. All, all anybody's going to remember is what you messed up. And, and uh, Puck was the only person I ever knew that called me Petey. I said, Petey, I mean, you got to be scared. Aren't you scared? I'm trying to listen to the speeches. You know, I'm trying to not be scared to get up there in front of 22,000 people who look like Woodstock out there in the fields of Cooperstown. But it was, I really do believe that because those two guys were so funny and um, such iconoclasts that it made it a lot easier. And then when I, that weekend, there was a lot of talk that the Red Sox, it was 2005, the Red Sox were going to trade Manny Ramirez to the Mets. So um, just at the near the end of Ryan Spanberg's speech, I get a message on my phone from Theo Epstein that says, Manny Ramirez is not going to be traded. So I, I go up to the podium to start my speech, and there's a guy up in the, out in the crowd, great voice, you know, uh, yelling, Hey, Peter, it's Manny Ramirez going to get traded? I said, well, my job as a reporter, I can report to you, um, Manny Ramirez is not being traded. So I was able to get up and make that speech and be able to be, still was able to be a reporter at the same time. And that's probably what I remember most, remember most about it is getting between George and uh, Kirby and, um, and Theo letting me know at the proper time that they were not trading Manny. It, was, it, uh, it made it a great deal of fun, a tremendous honor. I mean, you just, yeah, I stood up there and looked out there. I was a player, but I mean, I think about all the great players who stood at that at that podium uh, and accepted that award. And uh, you know, it's all about people that that were iconic idols, um, to say the least, to me, like Tom Seaver and and Eddie uh, um, Az. Um, it was it was tremendous. It, it was just. Standing up there is, um, I kind of, you, you, I actually lost sight of just of the scene and just thought about, this is so great. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to follow this up. This is just, this is a moment that it's once in a lifetime. Um, it's no different from writing the seventh game of the, of the 75 World Series. I've got, yeah, I've got to go there once. I saw one induction class. Uh, it is a special, special place. 2018, uh, Cape Cod League Hall of Fame. I know that's near and dear to your heart. It's not the Spink Award, but it's it's a pretty cool thing. I know you appreciate that. The Fielding Bible, Doug Glanville, Rob Nyer, Bill James are a part of it with you. How has Sabermetrics changed the game? And you think better or worse? I think some of it's much better. I mean, there are, there's a great deal that we can, we can quantify a great deal that we can really, um, see, um, and appreciate. I think one of the problems is though, that too many people get too carried away with the numbers. Um, I hear it once. Oh, don't give me that stuff about this guy's a good teammate or, uh, and it happened with a trade deadline. I mean, I, I said, uh, was, uh, I go back to trade deadlines when they were June 15th. And remember them well. The impact when one team 
does something and the team that a player is on or you're covering doesn't do anything, it affects players for a while. I mean, I saw it many times. It's why you saw, I mean, I, and I always go, here's my example. Two guys who really understood. They used to say to me, there comes a point in the season where the front office has to show the players that it's working as hard as we want the players to work. And the two guys that were really almost revolutionaries in this were Gillick and Sandy Alderson. And Morris pointed out, um, each one of them, 1989 trading deadline, June 15th, Ricky Henderson to Oakland. They win the World Series. And 1982 trading deadline, July 31st, Ricky Henderson goes to Toronto. They win the World Series. Those are the things, and the other teams kind of go, oh, no. I mean, one time it didn't work. Randy Johnson went to, went to Houston. But that was, a, that was kind of a freak um, playoff series against San Diego. Although I'm happy, I mean, I'm happy it happened. Because if, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have Petco. And in my mind, the best ballpark experience in the country right now is being in San Diego on a, on a game day. But that's, that's my own preference. Um, but uh, you, those things do affect people. I mean, there are. I'm sure you. You you would. You're not going to mention them, but there are players that just rubbed everybody the wrong way, and there were players that picked everyone up that made everyone joyous. I mean, I go back to Tian in the early '70s. Bus rides and play rides with Louis Tian were so fun. Red Sox would lose three in a row in Texas, three in a row in Kansas City every single trip they went there, and um, but the bus ride, you know. Bus rides are really easy when you're winning. Bus rides are tough when you just, you know, just botched up a three-game series. And Tion could just make everybody, everybody would laugh all the way on the bus ride and then the play ride. And he, he was, I always describe him as, as a concert um, a, a conductor because he would just, the whole team would be so funny. And yes, and I talk about it a lot, that he was, he was the soul of the team whether he was winning or losing, he was the soul. And those guys do make a difference. And I think analytics have, have, are trying to tell us that there's no such thing. And that's, it, you know, we've been through it, both of us. Uh, there is such a thing. Again, because they're not numbers, they're people that are playing. Favorite era of baseball. All your years in this game, if you could pick one, what's your favorite? Um, I would say, I think it was still the. I would say the seventies. First of all, because I was growing up at that time, but also we had a lot of new stars coming into the game. I mean, I. I'm still really proud of covering Robin Young's first game in the big leagues when he was 18 years old. But I got to cover Aaron and and and, and people like that in in that time. And and uh, there, there was a mixture of the game changing and the greatness of the of the 50s. It so changed baseball that Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby started. Um, I, I think that was my favorite time. <laughs> 
I really did. And some of the World Series that were so great, being around that Reds team, which was just incredible. Um, and then the, the, the personalities and watching free agency come and, you know, all the owners, oh, this is the worst thing. Of course, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to baseball, just as George Steinbrenner was one of the greatest things that happened to baseball because he spent and made everybody else spend. And the game, I mean, I once did a chart showing each year of free agency, the more the salaries went up, the more the attendance went up. The game made so much money. Baseball all of a sudden was in the news year-round. Players became personalities and stars. They weren't just, you know, the Aaron's and Mays and so forth. But it was. Uh, I think that was that was my favorite time, and and just being able to watch some of that and. and uh, um, sit through a couple of those Nolan Ryan 15 or to 19 strikeout games and realize what an incredible man he, uh, he was and remains to this day. Peter Gammons, hall of famer, pioneer. Uh, I want to say thank you for coming on the program. This was a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. And what we do at the end of each Boone podcast as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast for a question from the fans. Dano? Gentlemen, Mr. Gammons, this question comes via Alice in St. Louis, and she wants to know this. Mr. Gammons, give us three books that Brett should read one day. Wow. Um, wow. I think one would be, um, and I, I, I really mean this, it's, it's a Fabulous book. Um, and I think George Will's Men at Work, um, which my favorite chapter is is with Ripken and about defense. But it's a great book. Matter of fact, I was just um, recommending it to Troy Tulowitzki, now a, a coach at the University of Texas. Um, I think you could take any one of Roger Angel's books um, and just his just – his, or, or just take – like the best of Roger Angel writing about um, writing about seasons and also about uh, just how incredible players are and his understanding and the fun that he had writing about. I think maybe my favorite one was the greatest college game ever played, Ron Darling versus Frank Viola um, in uh, a Yale against St. John's. And um, I think if I were – if I were going to take for I would go back to 1961, Jim Brosnan. It was really the first baseball book I think I ever read. And it was Jim Brosnan. It was a diary of the season, the summer game. I know I, now I have to go back. But it was Jim Brosnan's book, if you go back. And that was the book as a young, I was, you know, being a teenager. I read that book, and it was so personal. I mean, there was stuff about because in those days they went from twenty-eight to twenty-five players. They cut three guys at the end of April, and reading about what players and their families went through and all that was the, the the pain that they went through. When I read that book at how whatever age, sixteen, fifteen, that's when I really understood that players are people. And I think that book, more than any baseball book, changed the way I looked at baseball. And it prepared me 
very well eventually to go to college and be covering college basketball, riding on a bus with Billy Cunningham when uh, Dean Smith got hung in effigy after a 108 to 91 loss at Wake Forest. Um, and it maybe changed the whole way I viewed athletes as performers. And um, so I would say that book, that's one of my three favorite because it changed my life. Mr. Peter Gammons, thank you so much for joining us here on the Bread Boom Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is mailbag time. Yeah, buddy. All right. This one comes from Bryce in Tampa. Brett, do the players read? Well, this this question should be a little more updated, but Brett, do the players read the newspapers or social media or things about them? Without a doubt. Everybody says they don't. Uh, everybody likes to say, I don't really care what they say. Players care a lot more than, than they lead on to. Okay. And this last question comes from Josh in Baltimore. Brett, what did you think of the uh, Yankees-White Sox playing in Iowa for the Field of Dreams game? And what was the oddest place you have ever played? I think uh, I look at it from a fan's perspective now. I think it was great for the game of baseball. I think it brought a lot of positive attention to the game. I think it was a very cool setting. You know, I got the view from the blimp. I thought that was cool. Uh, Costner coming out, opening, having kind of a opening ceremony i thought that was uh i don't know i thought i thought it was apple pie chevrolet major league baseball that being said as a player i would have hated it because <laughs> i play 162 games and it's a pain in the ass for me to go to iowa mid-season so there it is <laughs> did you uh did you get a little teared up when they were talking about traditions and then there's your face on a baseball card i did not i didn't even see it i heard from a few people but uh, no, I, I, I didn't see it. I wasn't watching the game. <laughs> Brett, I got kids. Do you want to have a catch with me? No, Dan, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty cool and a great ending, even though it went against a, a very favorite of yours, your brother and I. We love Aaron, but that was a pretty cool game to watch. All right, that's going to do it for this here podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Moon podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content is Liz Landry. Please share the Moon podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you do subscribe to the Moon podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Moon podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon podcast. I'm Dan Levy. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. See ya.